Um, and so if you've got a Bible, please, um, there's some at the back. So if you don't own a Bible or you've not got a Bible, please grab a Bible from the back. You can have that and keep that. Um, and, and that's our gift to you this morning. Um, but um, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 5. So um, while you're finding that or grabbing your coffee, let me just remind us of some of the context um, of Matthew chapter 5. Um, it's Matthew chapter 5 starts with, when he saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. So what we're seeing here is that Jesus is on a mountain, and we call it the Sermon on the Mount. We're starting slowly. It's a new year, okay? We're going to start really slowly. So it's Sermon on the Mount because Jesus is on this mountainside and he's bringing teaching. Um, he's bringing, I believe, one whole section of teaching um, that he's bringing to the people that are, are gathered around him. Jesus is not addressing the masses. He's not addressing the crowd. He's not addressing those that aren't following him. It says that his disciples came to him. Now, I just want to clear up something here. When we say his disciples... I think personally, my conclusion on this is, that's more than the 12, but it's less than the masses. The reason I think it's more than the 12 is because in Matthew's timeline of his biography of Jesus, which is the gospel of Matthew, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the gospels that speak about Jesus, Matthew, who's the one writing this, in his timeline, the 12 haven't been formed yet. In fact, him as Matthew hasn't even been called by Jesus to follow him. That doesn't happen until Matthew chapter 9. And in Matthew chapter 10, the 12 are commissioned. So the 12 isn't a thing yet. So when we read that his disciples came to him, I think it's less than the crowds, less than the masses, those that didn't believe him, those that weren't following him, but it's more than the 12. It's the group that was saying, there's something about this man and we're following him and we're seeking to listen to how he's teaching, listen to how he's living and, and seek to put that into practice in our own lives. I think some of those that were in that crowd we see in Matthew chapter 4, Matthew chapter 4, 24 says this of Jesus, that his fame spread throughout all Syria and they brought to him all the sick, those who were afflicted with various diseases and pains, demoniacs, epileptics and paralytics, and he cured them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. I think they're the ones that were following Jesus. They're the ones that Jesus is speaking. What we're working in at the moment is the Beatitudes, these statements of blessing. These are the ones that Jesus is speaking these over. It's the sick. It's the broken. It's the downtrodden. It's the unimportant. They're the ones that are listed in Matthew 4 as the ones that are following Jesus. And these are the very ones that Jesus is saying, you're blessed. Makarios is the word. Celebrate. You're blessed. It's not the ones that would have normally heard this word spoken over their lives. It's not the upper crust of Roman society, the wealthy, the important, the significant. This is the downtrodden, the beat up, the broken, the disregarded, the ones that told you were never going to be enough, so don't even try and be enough. That's who Jesus is speaking to. It's profound and it is completely countercultural. I recently, uh, you may not know this, but I have a degree in art. That was my first kind of area of study, was the art world. So I love art. Um, and I found some artwork recently that I think depicts these Beatitudes brilliantly. And it's by uh, two artists. Don't jump ahead on the slides, Victor, okay? So just make sure, you, if you show this first slide, uh, it's some artwork by um, Tim Web uh, Sue Webster and Tim Noble. Um, and they do installations. Now, some of you, I say installations, and you're just like, oh, not an installation, an unmade bed or something. How's that art? Um, okay, we're not going to get into that debate. But 
you can't really see it because of the light, but what is here? This is an installation, okay? So let me talk you through it. What you're seeing here is a wooden table with a load of trash on top of it. So you'd walk into a gallery and there would be this wooden table with piled up pieces of rubbish all over it. It's art, people, all right? It's what I studied for three years, so don't mock it. <laughs> but in, this, in these pieces of rubbish, there, someone has shot little bullets, BB bullets, has been shot through all of the, these pieces of trash. So that's what you've got. That's what you walk into a gallery, you see a table, load a pile of rubbish with little holes and bullet holes in it. And then periodically what happens is a light turns on and this is what you see. There's the cue, Victor. Go for it. Next one. No, go back one. You don't see that. That's what you see. You see the skyline of Manhattan. A moment of light that transforms and reframes everything that you thought you were looking at. That's what happens in that moment. It's about perception. It's about what you think you're seeing, which is trash, stuff that you would throw out. Suddenly, in a new light, it's reframed and becomes something so much more beautiful, so much more significant. They've got a few more that they do. Move on to that, that slide again, the next one, where you just see a pile of trash, and you can see that as the light comes on, you can see two people, one lying on the other. Can you see that? Piles of rubbish, McDonald's rubbish, and all kinds of things that we would dismiss, but actually that moment of light reframes it. There's another one that they do. Um, show the next one. You can't really see that, but it's two, two people leaning against each other, and someone's leaning into points. If you can see the trash, and then, then back to back, leaning against each other. A moment of light that completely reframes what we thought we were looking at. That's what's happening in this moment with the Beatitudes. Jesus is challenging our perception of those that should be in, those that should be blessed, and actually he's saying, no, no, hang on. The ones that feel like they could never be blessed, the ones that society and religion said, you are never going to be in, Jesus suddenly reframes and changes perception. So let me read the Beatitudes to you right now. Matthew 5, verses 3 to 12 says this. Remember Jesus speaking to the broken, the beat up, the rejected, the ones that society says, you're out of here. He says to them, blessed are the poor in spirit for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. Blessed are the humble for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. You are blessed when they insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Be glad and rejoice, because your reward is great in heaven, for that is how they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Father God, as we just gather around your word, I ask that you would expand our hearts to receive what you have for us this morning open our ears open our eyes but we we posture ourselves now to receive from you as a as a family as your church we seek to hear from you to be changed and transformed by you in order to live for you and for your glory so we do that by the power of your spirit this morning amen amen so this morning we are looking at blessed are the pure in heart for they will see God. 
I wonder what your first reaction is to that. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. My first reaction to it is, seeing God, yes please, that's what I would love. I want to see God more and more and more. I like that. I want to see God. Blessed are the pure in heart. I might as well give up now. Feels like an impossible task. If it's the pure in heart that get to see God, then I'm disqualified straight away. That's how I read this for the first time. But then I stop and I think, well, this is Jesus saying this. So I think Jesus is saying more than simply revealing our inability to be worthy enough to receive what he's got for us. I think there's something more going on here. So you're right if we dive in for a few minutes and go for a, I'm going to go for a really old school Bible study and an old school sermon because for the first time, possibly in very many years, but I start as I mean to go on, we're never going to do this again. I've got three points for this sermon and they all start with the same letter. Thank you. It's a proper sermon. It's not going to happen again, so enjoy it. But because we're looking at purity of heart, they all begin with P as well. How good is that? So we're looking at the promise of this blessing, the proclamation of this blessing, and the path of this blessing. Three Ps, and there may be some more if we get to the conclusion, if we manage to get that far. But the promise of this blessing, the promise of this blessing, we're going to start at the end and work our way backwards. But the promise is, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. That is the promise. That they will see God, the trash, the ones who are spiritually bankrupt, the broken, the bruised, the ones who think they're impure, who know they're impure because the religious leaders of the day would remind them regularly how impure they were. Even the system was set up in the temple to say, I'm sorry, you can come no further than this because you are impure. He's saying you can see God. But what does it actually mean to see God? C.S. Lewis says, It's easy to say, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. But only the pure in heart want to see God. I want to say, if you're in a place this morning where you desire to see God, maybe there's a clue there of what God is working in you. The Spirit of God is working in you. A desire to see Him. But what does it mean to see God? Like Moses in Exodus 33. This amazing moment where Moses is stood before God and and he he says, I want to see you in your fullness, God. God, show me your glory. And God says, there's no way that you could see my face and live. And so what he says is, I'm going to put you in the cleft of a rock and I will come past you and you'll see my back and you you will see my goodness. Just as an aside, isn't it amazing where Moses says, I want to see God and God reveals himself. How? By displaying his goodness. Oh, as the followers of Jesus, if we could display to the world goodness. God could have shown his power, could have shown his might, could have performed any miraculous thing. But no, he says, I'm going to reveal myself and I'm going to show you my goodness. That's just a little free one for you. He allows Moses to see him. The first thing that we need to understand when it comes to seeing God is that there is a God who wants to be seen. He wants to reveal himself. We see it with Moses. God actually wants to be seen. He allows Moses to see him, but what does seeing God actually mean? Jesus in this beatitude, I don't think, is talking about seeing God at some point in the future. This isn't like when Jesus returns, and it speaks about it in 1 John 3, uh, verse 2, and it says, And Christ appears, we will be like him, for we will see him as he is. This isn't some future moment. This isn't Revelation 22, when everyone will gather around the throne, and it says, We will see him. This is about here and now, about seeing God in this moment, 
as we follow him. There's three different words in the Greek that are used for, for see. New Testament written in Greek. Jesus spoke Aramaic, but the New Testament was written in Greek. And there's three words that could have been used in this moment for the word see. The first word is about just looking. So like my hand is in front of me. I see my hand. There's a clock on the back wall there that's telling me it's two o'clock in the afternoon. And I'm seeing it. Nothing other than that, I'm just looking at it. The second word is to observe. So to see and observe. So I have looked at that clock and I've observed that it's telling me it's two o'clock. We do it all when we go to the cinema or go to the theatre. You don't just sit there and look. You sit and you observe what's happening in front of you. The third word, which is actually the word that in this Greek translation uh, of the New Testament that, that is used for this word see that Jesus speaks in this moment is horahio. Now I'm not Greek and I'm not a master in Greek. I like a kebab and that's about it. So if I've pronounced that wrong and you're a master of Greek, then God bless you. But this word means to perceive and to know and to become acquainted with by personal experience. It's more than seeing, it's more than observing, it's encountering. And that's the word that's used in this moment. That on that day, as Jesus is sat on the side of that hill, he is saying, listen, I'm going to tell you how you can see God. It's like when anyone go to see their family at Christmas. When you went to see your family at Christmas, I'm guessing you didn't just drive up. If you drove there, you didn't just drive up, pull up on the drive and just sit there and look. Just sit there looking at them. And I bet you didn't just sit there looking at them and watching what they were doing. Oh, look. Some of you, some of you after you'd been in, wished that's where it had stopped. <laughs> but you didn't, you didn't just sit there and, and, and look and observe. You went in. You, you were with them. You engaged with them. You ate with them. You had an experience with them. That is the kind of seeing that Jesus is inviting people to encounter. It's a promise. God wants to be seen. And he wants to be known personally and intimately. You can see how radically offensive this was to the religious authorities that were saying, we need to make sure certain people don't get in. And Jesus is spinning it on his head saying, blessed are the pure in heart. And they're like, yes, we like that bit. Because they're going to know me intimately. And look at the crowd. Look at who he's speaking to. What a promise that Jesus is making in this moment. Those Pharisees, they were the keeper of the rules. The ones that determined how to get close to God through some 600 plus rules from the Old Testament and others that they expanded. And here Jesus is telling the trash, the ones that have been thrown out, that they can be the recipients of the treasure of the kingdom of God, which is to see him. It's a promise. And no one in this room should feel excluded from the invitation of God to see him. No matter what your experience of church has been, of, of other Christians, of religious leaders, of, of what you found from your parents saying, whatever experience you've had, there is a God who says, I want to be seen and you are invited to see me. It's the promise. Second is the proclamation. The proclamation. Blessed are the pure in heart. That's the proclamation. The declaration. But I wanted to use the word P, so it's Proclamation. Blessed are the pure in heart. I think we need to look at two things in this. Two things that I just want to unpack very, very quickly. And that is pure and heart. Two words that I think are misunderstood. Because we carry a bit of baggage as we look at those words. I'm going to start with heart. The word heart. Biblically speaking, the heart is the center of our thoughts, our passions, our desires, our appetite, our affections. 
our purposes. Proverbs, 20, uh, Proverbs 4, sorry, 23 says, Guard your heart above all else, for it is the source of life. It's the center of who you are, your character and your will. Your heart, biblically speaking, is the real you. Proverbs 27, 19 says, As the water reflects the face, so the heart reflects the person. It's who you really are. That's, biblically speaking, what the heart is. The heart is who you are in the secrecy of your own place, your own thoughts. It's the place that God sees. In 1 Samuel, it says that man looks at the outward, but God looks at the heart. John Piper, a uh, 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 speaker and pastor in America, says, The heart is crucial to Jesus. What we are in the deep, private recesses of our lives is what he cares about most. Jesus did not come into the world simply uh, because we have some bad habits that need to be broken. He came into the world because we have such dirty hearts that need to be purified. Piper's getting at something significantly deeper than just our behavior. He's saying there's something behind your behavior that fuels your behavior, and that's what Jesus is interested in, and it's called your heart. So what does it mean to be pure in heart? First, it does not mean being sinless. Scripture tells us that if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. That's whether you're following Jesus or not this morning, we are still sinners. I'll speak a little bit later about what the difference is if we get there. But it doesn't mean, purity of heart does not mean I have never sinned. Grace does not ignore sin or pretend that it no longer has significant consequences. Instead, our sin and its effects is part of what makes God's grace so utterly undeservedly and wondrous. So it's not that we've never sinned, but we are recipients of God's grace. Bible never calls us to be sinless, but it does call us to be blameless. There's a difference, and a significant difference. We all sin and fall short of God's glory, but we get to come before a God and be open and confess those sins, knowing that he is the one who can forgive us of all our sins. The word pure does not mean something that has never been dirty. It doesn't mean sinless, and it doesn't mean you've never been dirty. Some of us have been through some stuff and experienced things. And I want to I um, gently challenge this morning and say, if you feel that makes you forever dirty, it's not true in the kingdom of God. That's not what being pure of heart means. Scholars suggest that there are two words that basically mean uh, for the meaning of purity. The first is this, to make pure by cleansing from dirt, filth and contamination. By very definition, that means that thing has become dirty and needs to be cleansed. So it doesn't mean that you've never been dirty ever in your life. It doesn't mean that you're sinless right now. It's used to describe metals that are refined by fire and that the impurities are freed from those metals as they're heated and they become pure. Soil clothes that get washed clean. Grain that's carefully sifted to remove all the impurities. So purity communicates a cleansing, which means that it has been at some point dirty. Apply this to what Jesus says. For someone to be pure in heart is to know the reality of the cleansing that we receive that only comes from Jesus. Him alone. And we need to continually receive from Jesus. Not just a one moment in time, thank you, I'm done and dusted. No, continually returning to Jesus. Continually coming back to him. That invitation to see him, to intimately know him. To be cleansed. 
We can be so preoccupied with dealing with the sin issues in our life, the behavior problems that we have, that we neglect the reality that purity is all about Jesus. It's all about coming close to Jesus. We are pure in heart because Jesus has done all that needs to happen in order for us to be pure in heart. That he who knew no sin became sin so we could become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. That is the purity of heart. And so that doesn't stop us needing to deal with some of the behavior issues. It's not what I'm saying. We'll come to that in a few moments. But the reality of the purity of our heart is based on who Jesus is. Sexual purity, moral purity, ethical purity, they're all important. And the Bible speaks into them. For those that are following Jesus, there is a difference in how we seek to live our life. But the Bible is far more concerned with the purity of heart. Because as Piper said, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. There's something going on deep inside that causes us to behave the way we are. That Jesus has come to cleanse dirty hearts and make them pure. Because there's something deeper going on. Purity of heart is at the heart of purity. The second meaning of purity is being unmixed and having no double allegiances. The basic idea is that of integrity. So there's a cleansing, but then there's an integrity. We might use the word of sincere rather than hypocrisy. In fact, the J.B. Phillips version, uh, translation of this verse says, Happy are the utterly sincere, for they will see God. Has anyone ever been to Rome? I love Rome. It's one of my favorite cities in the world. But if you go to Rome, there are sculptures everywhere. Like you can't turn the corner for another sculpture. Like the end of it, you're just like, I'm kind of bored of sculptures now. And they're amazing and phenomenal and historical and incredible. Uh, that's because sculpture was a really popular form of art as the building of the city of Rome. And so what happened is because sculpture was really popular, there were loads of sculptors. It was a really popular job to have. Loads of people did it. Some of the sculptors were really, really good. And you can probably tell who they are because their sculptures still exist. They've survived the test of time. But there were some really, really naff sculptors as well. Just like most jobs, you've got someone who can do it really well, someone who just kind of cruises through. The, the trouble was with the naff sculptors, what they would do is they would want to create as many sculptures as possible as quickly as they could to make as much money as possible. That's how it worked. And so what they would do is they would sculpt something, and if something went wrong, instead of starting again, which the good sculptor would do, they filled in the gap or they poured wax into the crack. And that's what they would do, just to get this sculpture done and get it out. And so what you'd find is that you would look at the outward of this sculpture and it would look amazing. But loads of it was made up of wax. And so what happened was the good sculptors, those that took time to craft the sculpture, they started to write and sign their sculptures at the bottom of their sculpture with two words, sine sera. Simply means without wax. It's where we get our word sincere from. So what would happen is, as the sculpture was finished, the sculptures were put out in the sun. And the ones that had wax would start to melt and be revealed for the full flaws that they'd got. But the sincere ones, those that weren't contaminated, those that were fully what they should have been, stood the test of time. Blessed are the pure in heart. It's a heart without wax. It's a heart that is, in, that is authentic, sincere. It's not pretending it can stand blameless because we've admitted that we get stuff wrong before God. 
secure in heart is not about not sinning, but being open about the sin that we do have and relying on Jesus for the forgiveness of that sin. This is why we see Jesus challenge the Pharisees so much. In Matthew 23, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. It's the opposite of sincere. You cleanse the outside of the cup and of the plate, but inside you're full of extortion and rapacity. That's a fun word. You blind Pharisees, first cleanse the inside of the cup and of the plate, then the outside also may be clean. It's what Piper's talking about. There's something deeper going on than just outward behavior. Jesus says it's not enough to simply clean up the outside and look like you've got it all together, to look like you can present something to the world. All of those external efforts are within your ability and your effort to prove something. But the whole point of Jesus Whenever Jesus is speaking to people, and you might be challenged by when Jesus says um, to people, uh, go, and, go and sell all your possessions and, and give it to the poor, and, and, and you see these people leave disheartened, and you, you look at it and go, we were talking about this, weren't we, Alan? And, 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 and you think, well, how am I meant to do that? Whenever Jesus challenges someone, it's to bring them to the end of themselves, not so they can go, how am I meant to do that? But they're meant to say, who do I need in order to do that? Because you need Jesus. You can't live the life that Jesus calls you to without him. And it's about drawing closer to him. Because Jesus is both our example and our reason for purity of heart. 1 John 3, 2-3 says this, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. That's the reality of what we live in. Who we're going to be is not yet who we are. But we know that when he appears, when Jesus appears, we shall be like him because we will see him as he, as he is. Listen to this. And everyone who hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Everyone who puts their hope in Jesus becomes pure because he is pure. He is the reason for our purity and he is the source of our purity. It is Jesus. In light of the fact that Jesus has already accomplished on the cross what is needed to make us pure, we can work out our purity here and now, knowing that we will mess up and we do mess up, that we have wax running through our lives more than anybody could possibly believe, certainly in my case. But this is a lifelong journey with Jesus alongside others, allowing the Spirit of God to slowly melt the wax slowly allowing him to form something in us and so one day we will be like him completely pure following God wholeheartedly Philip Yancey in his book what's so amazing about grace says as a child I put on my best behavior on Sunday mornings dressing up for God and for the Christians around me it never occurred to me that church was a place to be honest now though as I seek to look at the world through the lens of grace I realize that imperfection is the prerequisite for grace. Light only gets in through the cracks. This is why Jesus is telling those that are broken, that have been disregarded, that have been forgotten, that have been told they're a load of trash, you're blessed. Because they knew they had cracks. The kingdom of God is not just about a, re a reform of manners of society. It's about a change of hearts in sinners like me to reveal our need for Jesus and the immensity of God's grace that we cannot live without. This is what purity of heart is about. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. It's the promise and the proclamation. So let me end, two, three minutes, and we'll be done with the path. Ready for some more peas? So we've got the promise, the proclamation, and the path. You know, as a church, we're seeking to 
uh, structure our church around living our life as followers of Jesus. Not just as, uh, and I mean this in all politeness, but not just as passive consumers that come to a service and somebody tells us what things mean and how to believe and how to behave and then we go out and hope that it impacts our life and others. These are significant moments when we gather and we gather for worship, we gather together around God's word to learn from him and to be like him, to encourage one another, to be a worshiping community together. But it's so much more than this moment. And so we're structuring our church around what it looks like to be disciples because that's what Jesus calls us to. He says, go therefore and make disciples and he'll build his church. But we're called to make disciples And so we are uh, structuring our church in a way that will make disciples. And one of the ways we're doing that is to create a framework by which people can can see fruitfulness in their lives. And we're doing it through a rhythm of life through four directions, up, in, out, and down. A worshipping life, a discipleship life, a mission life, and a resting life. And within that, we've got eight values. If you want to know more about it, then we've got some stuff we can give you. But uh, let me just speak into it, just through these directions as the path for purity of heart. I'm going to form a cross this morning, up and down, in and out. So I'm going to gather it around those, those two ways of doing directions. So first, up and down. I want to tell you that you are positionally pure this morning. If you are following Jesus, if you've given your life to Jesus, surrendered to him as Lord and Savior, you are positionally pure. And our rhythm of life, the up and the down, is the way that we live into that and remind ourselves regularly that the gospel Jesus taking all of our error on himself so that God's justice against sin could be complete, taking our sin to the grave and then three days later rising again powerfully over sin and death and that one day he will return and make all things new, that we get to to know that we are positionally pure because of Jesus, not because of what we've done but because of who he is and we are reminded by that because of the up direction in our rhythm of life and our down direction in our rhythm of life. Let me explain what I mean by that. Have you heard of a self-cleaning oven? Did you know these things exist? I'm getting some nods from people. I never knew these things existed. When we renovated our kitchen, if I knew there were self-cleaning ovens, I would have invested in a self-cleaning oven because it sounds like a miracle. But you know what there's not? A self-cleaning heart. That does not exist. There is not a self-cleaning heart anywhere. You cannot make yourself pure no matter how much of a good little boy or good little girl you try to be to prove who you are. Only God is the one purifies our heart psalm 51 it says create in me david says a clean heart O god and that's why the up in our rhythm of life is so significant seeing god being with god it's the worshiping life prayer where we abide with him that intimate relationship of being with jesus that's where it starts and yes a quiet time that you have with him maybe in the morning or some other time but our prayer life suddenly starts to invade our whole life and our whole life becomes a prayer That's the invitation. It's that up direction that reminds us who we are and who we need. The down, rest, Sabbath and celebration. Knowing what it means to stop, to cease, to Sabbath as a practical expression of a soul that can stop and rest knowing I'm positionally pure. No matter what I've done this week, I don't need to keep striving. God's got it in his hands. I'm actually invited to stop and to rest and know that I'm pure because of who he is that you are good enough and celebration that we are a celebrating people that we get to be joy-filled celebrating people as an expression of the reality that our standing before God is okay because of what Jesus has done we are positionally pure it's the up and the down now the in and the out 
if the up and the down shows that we are positionally pure, I'm getting some more P's in, all right? Just for those of you who are making notes and those that you try and remember things, it's just P, that's all you've got to remember this week. My brain went somewhere really wrong then. No, don't go there. It's the up and the down reminds us that we are positionally pure. The in and the out, that reminds us that we need to strive to be practically pure. And this is where it gets tough. This is the lifelong journey of following Jesus. Because so much, so much of the time we feel not very pure, but all over the New Testament we're encouraged to strive for purity of heart. That our behavior does matter. I was reading a book recently, and I've only read some of it, but I'm going to read all of it, where it talks about the fact that in the early forming of the church in the Roman Empire, it was not worship services that attracted the people to come and follow Jesus. It was the lifestyle of the people that followed Jesus that attracted them. And I wonder how much we've come to rely on this setting to do the hard work of getting people to follow Jesus, when actually it's a lifestyle that's lived, surrendered to Jesus, allowing the Spirit to work in and through us, that starts to shine an example in a world that is moving so far away from him. And I wonder if that is what will start to attract people increasingly to following Jesus. Because they see authentically this difference in life actually works. And there's something different about them, and I want that. And that's what we're seeking to do through our missional households and our gospel communities. But striving for practical purity, to take off and put to death the old and put on the new. If our positional purity is given by God, then our practical purity is about surrendering our lives more and more to the Spirit's working of transformation in us. We still can't force it to happen. God's the one that works in and through us. But we put ourselves in a position of surrendering to God in order for Him to work. Paul talks about it in Philippians 2. He says, continue to work out. So there's work on our part. Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good pleasure. There's a partnership. It's us working with God. So us putting ourselves in a position where we say, God, you work in and through me and do what only you can do, but I'm going to start to work towards this and strive towards it. And sometimes it's a real striving, certain things having to die in our life. It's hard work, but the Spirit of God is the one that brings it. So it's us working with God and that's, the, that's the, uh, the, the, the in and the out, the in being, uh, being us together. So the up and the down is us knowing positionally we're pure. The in and the out, the practical purity, it's us working with God, but it's us doing it together. God has put us in the family of God. There are no Lone Ranger Christians. Rich Valodas, uh, a pastor and writer in America, says, The Bible is more communal than individual. Jesus teaches us to pray, our Father, not my Father. Paul uses the phrase, our Lord, 53 times, and my Lord, only one time. Jesus is my personal Savior, is not found anywhere in Scripture. We are the people of God, we belong to each other. Our striving for purity has to happen in the context of a community of people that are following God. Where there is an honesty to let the mask come down and to reveal who we really are. And we spur one another on and we encourage one another Paul writes in Philippians 4, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Have you ever tried to do that on your own? Boy, it's hard. When you start to do it alongside others, and you're pure in heart, knowing your need for Jesus, and you're blameless before God, saying, do you know what, very rarely do I think like that. But hey, let's strive towards it together. Let's support each other and let's try and get towards that. Philippians 4 verse 8 was written to a community to practice as a community. If 
purity of heart means living with sincerity, then there is nothing like an authentic community to allow the masks to come down, to allow ourselves to be seen so we can see God together. That's why we're structuring OCC the way we are, to form authentic relationships, learning together as a community what it means to be the people of God, drawn together by the power of the Spirit to know the Father through the Son. That is our in. We are community. We need to love where we are with a God who has given us each other in real and practical ways. That's the in. And the out is the gospel. It's the gospel that starts to change us. And living and sharing it in word and deed with those outside of the church. Opening our lives up to be truly seen. So God can become visible in the places and spaces we find ourselves as we host one of our values, hospitality. As we host those who are far off. And they start to see genuinely the change in our lives and the transformation. There's a framework there. You might want to work out and strive your purity in different ways. That's fine. As a church, that's the structure that we're putting in place in order for us to be able to find something that can help us grow in following Jesus. Four rhythms, uh, eight values. It's who we are. So, Alan, will you come and lead us in worship? We're going to sing and uh, and we're going to finish our service together. The promise of this blessing that you will see God. The proclamation of this blessing blessed are the pure in heart the path of this blessing for us as a community up the in the out and the down that we are positionally pure and we strive to be practically pure so let's stand together shall we my prayer this morning over each one of us is that we would live as God's people knowing ultimately the God who longs to be seen and known may we live with hearts that are undivided in our desire for intimacy with Jesus and commitment to community And as we leave this morning, may we start to see God in unexpected ways and in unexpected places. And may we live with a heart that is both receiving and working out what it means to be pure for his glory. Together as his people, we all say, Amen. Thanks, Alan.